Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello, and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandi Skilache, Editor-in-Chief, and today I have with me Dr. Eleanor Yaniga, who's a medieval historian who specializes in sexuality, propaganda, and apocalypsism. Eleanor, (laughs) Eleanor, can you tell us a little bit more about apocalypsism? Okay, so um, one of the things that, uh, you know, when one will insist on being a medieval historian, right, um, and I am a Europeanist, and so that means that I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about Christians, uh, and what we would call Catholics now, more specifically. Um, And the thing about medieval Europeans and their obsession with um, Christianity is that they really believe it all the way. Uh, The way that we tend to um, think about Christianity now is a lot more kind of pick and choose, like a buffet style. So people kind of like take a little belief they like or another one. Um, For medieval Europeans, they're really kind of living steeped in a Christian environment. And one of the things that people kind of forget about Christianity is it's what we call a linear religion, right? So it posits that the universe has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And one of the things that it's actually really big on, if you sit down and read the Bible, is the idea that the world is going to end at any moment. So it's going to be the end of the universe at any point in time now, because the middle was when Jesus came. And we're supposed to be expecting Jesus to come back at any moment now. So as a result, yeah, as a result of this, medieval people spend a lot of their time uh, just kind of looking out for signs that that is in fact coming. Uh, so they see apocalypticism in all sorts of different events. And also, you know, uh, I'm kind of uh, more of an expert in the later medieval period in particular. And when you've got stuff like, for example, the Black Death uh, around, it can be yeah. really easy to understand why you would think that maybe the world was going to end. You know, right? Um, exactly. Um, and so. I, I, you know, I've done some research on on. I'm a medical historian myself, and so I've done some research on the Black Death, and I've been interested to see just how much of that um, era has suddenly cropped up in the age mm-hmm. of COVID, even though the plagues are not necessarily comparable, and the time periods are certainly not comparable. There's there's certain connections that people are making. And mm-hmm. certainly right now, from the right, I think, more so than the left, there is a kind of strange uh, apocalypse now, we are heading to the end times rhetoric that I've seen. And I just was hoping you might be able to share with us a little bit from your own research. Are these time periods comparable? Are we seeing some of the same kinds of things? I mean, the, the thing about history is that if you're looking for patterns, they always kind of emerge, don't they? And it's it's one of those funny things because obviously, you know, the pandemic that we're living through now is nowhere near as virulent as uh, the Black Death was. Um, you know, when I when I say the Black Death here, to be clear, what we mean by that is the uh, bubonic plague that erupted specifically in the 14th century. So um, mm-hmm. it, we think that we had it before, for example, in the Justinian plague that hits kind of Byzantium in the late antique period, and it crops up. It comes up back again and again and again. So, you know, the 17th century plague, which is like the one where we have all the great records for for London and that sort of a thing. All of that is bubonic plague, but it's not the Black Death. The Black Death is only the one that happens in the 14th century. Right, um, okay. So... 
And with that, that's like the like one of the really big virulent outbreaks, um, if not the first. And uh, it kills so many people worldwide. I mean, essentially um, on the continent of Eurasia um, and Northern Africa as well, we see as much as kind of like uh, we think overall in the world terms of the worldwide population, a quarter of everybody died. Wow. In various places in Europe, that is 50% of the population died. Right. So interestingly, it varies place to place. So for example, um, one of my areas of specialty, like I, I work very specifically in an, an expert on Prague. And uh, in Prague, they didn't really get the plague at all. It's really weird. I don't, I don't know why. Uh, but they, they kind of like come through a lot of the 14th century unscathed by it. But then you compare and contrast that with places, for example, like Florence, who have up mm. to 60% of the population die. Right. Um, and, and so that's how you get the kind of 25%. So in places where it does hit, it hits so hard that you can really understand why people would be like, well, well I guess the, the, this is it. This is the end of the world. What we're kind of seeing now and, and what's interesting and what I do think is is quite um, medieval in its, its thinking is this sort of like almost desire on the part of certain individuals to say, OK, well, th- this is it. It's um, this is a po- this is the apocalypse. These are signs of the end times and a kind of like almost accelerationist desire there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because you can see that with people who kind of uh, preach uh, apocalypticism or think about the apocalypse in uh, the medieval period. Sometimes you kind of like get the feeling that they're like licking their lips, right? You know, they're saying, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't want Antichrist to come. It would be bad if it's the end of the world. We wouldn't like any of that. But at the same time, it's like you can tell that they really see themselves as like the elect who are going to go to heaven. And to be fair, like if, if you are a Christian and you really do think you are doing the right thing, the end of the world isn't necessarily a bad thing for you. And right. unfortunately, especially like in America and things like that, some of the uh, some strands and flavors of evangelicalism, um, they, they state that. So, for example, one of the reasons why um, and this is this is a stated thing. So Mike Pence is specifically interested in the American support for Israel because there's an apocalyptic thing behind that, which is that um, the Antichrist, right. when he comes back, is going to rule in Jerusalem. He's going to fool all the Jewish people into thinking that he is the Christ. They are all going to follow him. It's all nice and anti-Semitic. Um, right. And then uh, he's going to be defeated by, quote unquote, the spirit of Christ's mouth. Um, and then he, the Antichrist will be defeated. All the Jews, the Jewish people will uh, convert to Christianity. And then the final judgment will take place. Um, okay. And Mike says that. He's like, we have to make sure that we support, you know, this project because of, you know, the apocalypse. So when you have people like this in control of the government, it's really hard not to see that mm-hmm. if they're saying it's true. Right, <laughs> right. Well, exactly. And and I think, you, you know, you, you make a good point that if you are looking forward to the it's, – it's really not that you're necessarily looking forward – that they're looking forward to the – the tragedies of the end times, but they they have this beyond beyond tragedy, beyond ten times, mm-hmm. uh, you know, focus that we're all going to heaven, etc. But what I what I want to talk about too, and this goes back to your some of your work on the Black Death, is there was a kind of odd um, laissez-faire attitude towards death that emerges out of this because it was sort of mm-hmm. a eat and drink because tomorrow we die, the dance of the death, the, the the dance macabre. Um, yeah. I wouldn't go so far, I guess, as to 
to necessarily say that's a death cult, but you have a lot of people talking about death cults right now, especially Mm. where we have evidence that COVID is a disease and it's transmittable and it kills people. Um, I think it's 1.4 million people worldwide now. It might even be bigger than that by the time this uh, podcast goes live. And yet you have people who seem to be almost courting this. You've got the people that are, Mm. you know, uh, going without masks, but even more troubling, people who are licking licking handles of doors. You know, there's videos of these people oh, doing God. really strange things. Um, and I know that there is a uh, that we've talked about this before, and that you certainly have kind of some views on this. And I just wonder if we can say something about the strange heroism of the or or or. I, th- I don't know if heroism is even the right word, but this this elevating that I am standing. Uh, intentionally walking into the apocalypse on purpose. Mm. Uh, Donald Trump yeah. certainly has used that rhetoric. Can you can you speak to that? Like as a historian who's looked at this in the past, what do you see as the connections here? Yeah. So for me, there's there's a couple of things going on there. Um, so as you say, we do see the kind of like, oh, well, the dance macabre sort of like, well, fuck it. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, this, I, right in with the F-bombs. Well done, Eleanor. Um, there's this kind of like attitude where it's just like, there's nothing that can be done. Um, there's this disease going on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to enjoy myself regardless. And we certainly see that, for example, in uh, America, like if we think about like the Sturgis rally, for example, it's like, oh, well, you know, there's just a bunch of, uh, you know, playground anyway, and no one's going to stop me from riding my Harley to Sturgis, you know, and mm-hmm. we, a part and parcel of that, I think, as well, is this kind of um, reference to masculinity that is very similar um, to the sort of medieval conception thereof. Um, and this idea that in order to be concerned about uh, your health or to worry about one's health is like inherently feminine and weak, and that if you are truly strong, if you're truly masculine, then, um, you know, nothing like a little disease is going to kill you. So there's absolutely no point in um, in doing anything about it, right? And so from a medieval standpoint, there is, we, we do know that this is a specific thing about uh, masculinity, right? So um, for basic humoral theory, the idea is that men are hot and dry versus women who are cold and wet. And there is this conception that disease is in general about your body perhaps becoming, you know, too cold or it's it's got basically um, some malign humors that are coming in. Now, because mm-hmm. men have a hotter constitution, the idea there is that their constitution will simply burn up these things uh, that are attacking them. So if you have something go wrong in your immune system, uh, the heat from being a man just burns it up and you'll be fine and it'll be okay. And it's just women or insufficiently masculine men uh, that therefore suffer from disease. Um, And indeed, that's also a part of the idea that, you know, um, older people are more susceptible to disease because the older we get, it's conceptualized, um, the colder we get as well. So mm-hmm. we become cold people um, in the later age and we can't burn off diseases and that's why we die. So we, I think that we do really see things. You know, there are, there were multiple people relating to, uh, for example, when uh, Donald Trump uh, got uh, COVID being like, oh, well, he's just so masculine. You know, he's a, he's a real man. So he'll just come through it. You know, the implication here being that the only people who die of a disease are not real men. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a, they're, right. they're fake men somehow. And that like just bravado or the very performance of masculinity is something that shields you from the malign effects of disease. Um, so like on the one hand, we have that. It's just like, oh, well, I'm simply so manly that I will come through a really hideous disease and it, it won't actually um, affect me or 
influence me in any way. So that's that's on one hand. Um, and then on the other hand, you do also see kind of people, I think, where there is like a little bit of fatalism. So, you know, for example, telling people, you know, certain government like, you know, here in, in I'm in the UK, um, certain governments kind of saying, well, you can go out to work, but that's it. You can't like go have fun or you can't like see your loved ones or anything like that. That I, I kind of like the pushback against that is sort of like the dance with cop stuff where it's like, oh, no, well, uh, you, you know, if there's going to be no joy, if my life is going to be completely governed by the idea that I, I'm just going to like work or whatever, I choose not to do that. I choose to do these fun things, although it might result in my death. But to a certain extent there, there's just a kind of fatalism. Um, and that's really disappointing because, you know, from a medieval standpoint, like, yeah, they did. They didn't know what the black death was right um which is fair enough because right. it's called a bug called yersinia pestis and why would they know that you know um they knew it's catching they knew that they had the concept of uh, contagion so they were like well we're pretty sure you get it from being by other people who are sick but we don't know where it came from in the first place and we also don't know what to do to stop it so it's sort of fair enough in those circumstances to understand why people might be interested in partying and just saying well never mind i'm, I'm gonna go have the best life possible. But now, you know, when we do know specifically like how communicable a disease is, um, people who kind of choose to be a little uh, less rigorous, shall we say, um, are a little less mm -hmm. understandable. Although, you know, we're all trying to do our best in a really like difficult circumstance. So I do give people, you know, the benefit of the doubt there. Right, right. Well, I just, um, I think one of the things that is interesting to me is how we very often look back in history for methods, models, even comfort to know mm. how we've come through something in the past. And a lot of people have relied on, for instance, comparing it to the flu epidemic that mm -hmm. hit in 1918. Others have compared it to the various cholera outbreaks. There were six big ones in the Victorian period, and many, many people died, and the deaths were actually quite sudden. Um, what I think is is interesting here is that we are faced with a pandemic that does not actually immediately kill you. And in fact, you yeah. can have it without producing symptoms that are apparent. And so you end up with a situation where um, apparently the, you know, Donald Trump didn't have a condition that his didn't deteriorate to, in, to such a degree that he needed to be extended extensively hospitalized etc mm. um and yet you have perfectly healthy young people who are either dying from covid or um having some of the strange permutations where for instance i, I have a colleague who died of a heart condition related um, oh. to ha having contracted COVID, though never having heart problems before. So, you know, it seems to be striking people in such a disproportionate way. And mm. I think um, sometimes we, we look back and we go, oh, so it's, it's like the, the pandemic flu. Oh, it's like cholera. But in fact, maybe there is a reason to compare it a little bit more to the bubonic plague, because as I understand it, wasn't uh, during the Black Death, wasn't there actually different sort of permutations? Wasn't there one that was kind of the bubo mm. and the other was a sort of um, airborne 
Yeah, so I mean, what we we tend to say um, when we look at the descriptions that people have um, of of the plague is sometimes we kind of divide it into two permutations. So the pneumonic plague on the one hand and the bubonic on the other. Um, and the pneumonic plague, when people describe it, they kind of say that, well, what it does is it attacks your lungs really quickly. Uh, your breathing becomes really difficult. And then you're basically dead within four days or so. Um, the bubonic plague, they say, is like related to that. And sometimes they're comorbid. You know, you can have the, the symptoms of both. And the bubonic one, the one that we're commonly thinking of, is is the one with your bog standard black death. So um, you basically, your lymph nodes mm -hmm. swell up um, really huge and they turn slightly black, I understand. Um, and they kill you in a very slow and painful way. Um, and so it's interesting because there it is like the way they're kind of, they, they, they speak about it or think about it, it seems like it might be two things and you know there is a kind of a vogue some people like to go back in time and and try to diagnose what this is and sometimes you know for example i've seen people say oh well actually it was anthrax <laughs> that's what uh that's what the pneumonic plague is and all these things and um I mean, I'm not, of course, like I'm, I'm but a simple historian. I'm not a, a, you know, someone who works with pathogens. So I don't think it's necessarily important. I think the important thing is that something came through here and killed a lot of people. Right. You know, like that's the, that's what I'm concerned about is like not necessarily how it's, um, how, what, what did it. But I think that you're, you're absolutely right because one of the things that's uh, going on here is that you do either see like this really lingering, slow, terrible thing that happens that kills people. And in the case of bubonic plague, uh, which is more like what we're seeing. Um, I mean, I think that one of our other things in terms of, you know, people really looking, looking for other um other diseases to, to kind of liken this to and the kind of casting about trying to look at other pandemics to see what this is like is there's this sort of desire for comfort, right? Um, and that mm -hmm. I would almost say is a kind of uh, survivor's bias, right? Because by virtue of all of us being here, uh, the people that we were related to directly made it through right, <laughs> right so yeah. you know like so somewhere along the way um somebody made it through um but that's also kind of like throwing a lot of people under the bus uh who who did die and for whom it was very serious but you know what people want is they want some hope to say okay well there's been worse things than this and people do come through it but you know it also and, and that's true that's absolutely true but the fact of the matter is you know not all of us make it through into the future and i'm really unwilling to kind of take that particular tack or rely on things in that particular way because i mean it's saying that you know i accept that there's going to be this certain percentage of loss and this is the thing that right. i i find acceptable and i just don't find any of it acceptable you know right, um, right. I, i'm uh, I, you know i'm i'm kind of like team hippocratic oath i'm like we, we need to save <laughs> as we possibly can here. I don't, I don't want to just throw up my hands and say, oh, well, there's nothing that can be done. Oh, look at all these other pandemics that have come through, you know? And I think that when we look at things, um, you know, like the cholera epidemic, so for example, like the cholera epidemic here in London, you know, when those broke out and Jon Snow, like, eventually traced it, it all down and we we did something about the water it's not like oh well screw it you know eventually it all became fine in the end it became fine in the end because we did something you know there were right. like interventions and and people really yes. trying to trying to fix it so i think that it's not helpful to like immediately reach the past uh, for lessons if all you want to do is be closeted like if the only thing that you want out of this is to hear oh well don't worry it'll be all right it was bad for other people but it'll be okay for you um i don't think the past is the place to do that because yeah sure it was all right for some people but there's a lot of people for whom it really wasn't you know 
Right. It's, it reminds me a bit of the um, the bumper stickers that went around for a while where people said, we survived eight years of uh, Bush, you can survive eight years of Obama. And one of my friends who is a, um, a researcher and also a previous military person was like, some of my friends didn't survive eight years. Of, mm-hmm. of that administration because of the uh, the wars that that were fought and the various um, military deployments that happened and so you know there is a way in which a bumper sticker that I casually were like oh that's clever um, it's not clever in fact it's overlooking the fact that you know administrative changes and policy changes and whether we do or do not choose to act to save lives is not something that is really bumper stickerable you know it's actually yeah. a really important um, and, and if we overlook it in that way, it's, it can be very dangerous. So let me ask, because we're, we're sort of closing in on our time. Let me ask you, um, I, I know because we're both historians, we're going to tend to think historians have a role to play. But what does history help us do as a populace as we face these situations? So, I mean, on the one hand, I was just like, well, don't go rushing to learn lessons from the past in these ways. But I think that there are things that we can learn and some actually really great things sort of uh, come out of, uh, you know, terrible things in the past. Um, And a lot of them have to do with kind of communities getting together to do the right thing and help each other out. So, you know, I would be shocked, for example, if you went back in time to the medieval period and um, you explained to them exactly what bubonic plague was and what they had to do in order to fight it, they would all be like, great, thank you. I'll, I'll take that on board. You know, I would like to do that. Yes, please. I would like to, to um, solve this thing that, that's killing everyone. Um, and I think, you know, we certainly see that, for example, um, there is stuff like the King of France, when uh, the uh, bubonic plague first breaks out, he commissions, for example, the Paris medical uh, faculty at the at the University of Paris to explain how this happened. And they come back to him with a, a very complicated thing about um, astronomy and how conjunctions of certain planets have released a poisonous vapor that's poisoning everyone. But, right. you know, the point, what we do see there is that there is, even in, you know, the medieval period, when we're talking about a king, there is this kind of interest um, in explaining what is going on, you know, for his people, explaining how it is that this came to be and what can be done, you know, like he's still interested enough to say, well, what is happening here? And can I do anything in order to alleviate this or ameliorate this? So, I mean, I think that that is like, you know, really helpful and hopeful because like even in these circumstances where it's a profoundly unequal society there, there's still people who are just trying to do the right thing. Um, We can also look at uh, places like here. This is not the bubonic plague. This is just a irregular garden variety plague. But um, here in England, there is this nice example from the 17th century plague um, of the town of Eam up in Derbyshire. And uh, they basically ended up getting, I think, a shipment of... uh, of wool up from London that had fleas in it with plague and they got plague. And what they decided to do was uh, close in their town completely. So a kind of nobody in nobody out situation. And they bargained with some people to come like drop provisions and food off from them out on the like town limits and they would go pick them up and basically said, well, you know, like as a community, this is the thing we're going to band together. We're going to make sure that nobody else gets this. We'll take care of each other as best we can in this situation, but we're going to make sure that this stops here and stops with us. And I think that's, you know, a brilliant and wonderful lesson for us is, you know, there's all these ways of, I mean, that's a particularly bleak (laughs) example, (laughs) but a lot of people did come through and a lot of people did, uh, did survive that. Um, But what it does show us is the kind of value of community organizing and working together within these circumstances um, to get through things. 
I also really want to push back on, you know, ideas like, you know, one of the quite twee things that people say is like, oh, well, after the Black Death happened, the Renaissance happened. And um, I really hate that when I see people say that, because I know that what they're trying to say is like, oh, there are hopeful things after the Black Death. But I mean, uh, the Renaissance, quote unquote, like happens like 200 years after the Black Death. Right. It's, not, the, it's not like it's not like one of these, you know, no one who had to put up with the Black Death was, you know, quote unquote, enjoying the Renaissance. And moreover, the Renaissance is like largely just an art movement that happened to rich people, you know, like your average person didn't really enjoy well, anything. And, <laughs> and isn't that a lesson from history as well, which is what we want to come back from COVID once this is, uh, once we have the vaccines and we've managed however long it takes to, to push back the pandemic, what we don't want is a world that's just better for two or 3% of the population. And what uh, we've been, inter have had several interviews previously of disability activists like Alice Wong, who has said things that I think are quite important, that um, the, the norm before the plague was not good for most people. And mm. what we really want is to build back a society that isn't just going to be better for a select few who can afford it mm -hmm. or who are in other ways privileged either by birth or location, et cetera, um, economics to, to mm. take advantage of these things. And so I think that that's um, so another lesson perhaps that historians can that we can make sure that we're bringing to the fore is not just to look at, um, yes, this has happened before. Yes, we've been able to you know survive such things, but also to say, what kind of a world do we actually want to have because it's a little bit hard to get where you are going if you don't know where you've been. So I mm -hmm. think that that might be the one um, the one real key thing about historical overviews or, or looking and comparatively uh, looking comparatively between the current situation and our past situations is to see that we can do better. <laughs> we can do better. Absolutely. And uh, historians can can kind of help us see that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with as we sign off for the podcast? Oh, gosh, um, that's a great question. Um, I just want to big up the concept of medieval history generally. Um, if you are interested in uh, more of my uh, takes on things like this, I write really extensively over at my blog, which is uh, going-medieval.com, uh, because some bastard got to goingmedieval.com before me, and he's not even using it. Ah. So I'm not better. <laughs> I'm not better. It's fine. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at, at goingmedieval, but um, basically I, I do the same sort of thing that Brandy and I were just uh, doing here, where I think about the kind of overlap between medieval history and our current society and what that can teach us. Um, so if you're interested in that, come check my stuff out. I'd really appreciate it. Wonderful. Thanks again, Eleanor, and to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining in. Don't forget that we provide transcripts of our podcast that will appear in our blog posts. And we're really happy, as always, to have you be part of our conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ.